What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. How do you begin every day in leadership with a blank page and write a story of what God wants to do that day? That's what we're going to talk about today on this episode of Lynch with a leader. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and I am so honored that you've taken the time to be on this podcast today, to listen in from wherever you are. And my goal and my passion and my heart is to help you be the leader that God created you to be in the space and the place that God has put you. So, so happy to have you today. And I think you're going to really enjoy episode 146. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. And I just want to stop here before we even dive any further and to say thank you. Thank you for all of you who listen, who go and leave ratings and reviews. It means the world and it truly does help people find their way to us. This uh, last post that was just made on called Leading with Purpose by Tech Lynn. Mike does a great job of bringing out the authentic and powerful Christian leadership gems from his guest. I can't wait for each episode to drop. Very well done and impactful for the kingdom. Thank you, Tech Lynn, for sharing that. And thanks to each of you for doing it. So if today you can do two things. One, Stop and subscribe. If it got forwarded to you, man, subscribe so you never miss an episode. We're already lining up our 2023 guests, and we have so many great ones coming the finish of 2022. And in 2023, it's going to be a lot of fun. So number one, subscribe. Number two, if you do get a chance to rate and review on iTunes or Spotify, it means the world. And it really, really is helpful in getting people here. Well, today, leading from a blank page comes, it's a line that comes in today's episode from Charles Martin. Charles is is not just an author. He has written some of the most incredible novels you have ever read because they weave together not just stories, but they weave together who Charles Martin is. You may have read his newest record keeper, or letter keeper. Uh, he wrote a book this past year with his pastor, Joby Martin, called They Turn the World Upside Down, talking about the disciples. The one that probably most of us know Charles for is The Mountain Between Us that was turned into a Hollywood movie. His story is fascinating. Who he is, how he writes, it is just so interesting. And it's it's such a great picture that leadership is done in so many different ways. He's been married since 1993. He has three boys. But what you're going to hear in this is his heart. You're going to hear his, not, not just his heart for writing, but his heart for life and who he is and why he leads the way that he does. And I think you're going to really, really enjoy it. So I don't know where you're listening from today, but I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen to just an incredibly creative, imaginative leader who every day begins with a blank page. And his name 
is Charles Martin. I can't wait for you to listen in. Well, Charles, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. <clears throat> it is an honor to have you, buddy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you making the time. Well, it's been fun to follow you, follow your career. I, I've heard you. I've heard you say a statement a couple times in an interview. Every day oh. is a blank page. Fact. When yeah. when you when you say that, I think that's a, that statement is probably packed with a lot of meaning. What does that mean to you that every day is a blank page? Well, <laughs> it's uh, every day I sit down here. Um, I, I turn on my computer and I, I'm amazed that no matter how stellar I think I might have been the day before and no matter how many words I wrote, how, you know, fantastic they may or may not have been, my computer does not care. And every <laughs> time I sit down, the screen is once again, white and blank. And it does, it past performance has no bearing mm -hmm. on, you know, future ability. So um, it's just, it's just one of those humbling things as a writer that you, you just are humbled every day. Mm. You just sit down here and there's another white page. And in my case, I just, I literally, I talk to the Lord a lot about my stories and the stuff I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working on and I just lean into him and I press in and I, I you know, I, we have, it's, I think my brain sometimes is a little bit split because I'll literally be working on a story on one side and on the other side of me, I'll be having a conversation with him so it's a it's an it's an admission that books don't write themselves. Mm. Um, you know, it, it does take work. A lot of people have sought my time and said, "Hey, uh, can we have coffee with me? I'd really like to talk to you." And early in my career, I did that. And I, probably, I met with a bunch of people because I felt like I should, you know, sort of some way I could serve them. And I soon realized that people did not really want to be a writer because being a writer means I'm going to spend six, eight, 10, 12 hours in front of this thing, talking to no one else, not doing anything else, trying to put words on the page. And what the, what the folks were enamored with was what they perceived was the life of a writer, which mm. was smoking jacket, Pope, you know, the, the, the <laughs> pipe sounded like J.R. Tolkien, <laughs> having some membership in the Inklings, you know, a book signing with a line out the door. Um, very few of those things happen. So I just realized that that's what they were not, seeking after because when you boil it down you know it's like any great athlete they may look great on the field but if they don't put time in the off season who sees the early morning hours and the late afternoon runs and you know the two and three a days and all the sweat and all, all of that who nobody sees that what That's they right. see is the you know diving catch in the end zone so i don't know blank page uh books don't write themselves it's a humbling thing but it's also one of the things i love because I'll segue here just briefly in a hush, but in the beginning, God created the mm. first verb used in scripture is a testimony to his character and what his spirit does and he creates. And so I love that. And I've had great days sitting at this computer and I've had really tough ones, but I still, I wouldn't trade them. That's fantastic. And I've heard you say, Charles, you know, there's days you look at the computer and there's nothing there and you don't manufacture something that's not there. If it, if it's not working, you know, when to walk away from it, correct? Uh, that's tough. Sometimes. Yes. But I've also said that I, I sweat my books more yep. than I write. them, yep. and, I, and I think what I mean by that is early on in this whole thing, when I first got started, a really, uh, a really successful writer, he'd written about 60 different books, 
told me, he said, Charles, you got to treat this like work. And whatever you do, don't wait on the muses because they're seldom on time. Mm. And usually when they do show up, what they have to say isn't any good anyway. So treat this like work. Put your fanny in a seat and spend the time and sweat it out. And I have. And I think that if Christy were sitting here, she would tell you the thing that I've probably done well in my career is I've just sort of stuck to it. And I've had really difficult, hard moments when the words wouldn't come. And I've had weeks and weeks and weeks go by where they just, it was just like being stuck in a quagmire. But somehow showing up and putting my fanny in the seat and and just pressing in and treating it like work. You know, I'm, I'm now 20-something books into a career that spans something over 20 years. My, you didn't ask me this, but I'll this is going to sound like me tooting my own horn and me bragging. And it's not, that's not what, that's not necessarily what I mean. It's look what God did. That's right. And what, and what God did is my books are now in 35 trans 35 languages, 40, 40 plus countries. Um, I didn't, I didn't do that. I mean, that's, that's just the Lord, but that, that doesn't in my, in my world, that doesn't happen if you don't put your time in the chair. That's so good. You know, and you, you didn't begin out to be right out of college to be a novelist, right? You're sitting there as an injured Georgia Tech football player thinking, okay, I've got to look at what's next for me. What did you think at that time? If I had stopped you in that locker room, you've gotten the diagnosis, you know, probably college football is not in the cards. If I'd have said, all right, Charles, go ahead. I I know God is sovereign, but I'm going to give you a piece of paper. You draw out what you want your life to look like. What do you think you would have drawn out? Well, that's a great question, but let me back up just briefly because you paid me a wonderful compliment when you said I was a Georgia Tech football player. And yes, I did go to Georgia Tech and I did play football for a year. I even had a locker in the locker room. I got to dress out. I had a you know, jersey on the game days, and I had a really strong hold on fifth string. Um, there was not a sixth string, so I wasn't able to get that. But I did play a year. I got really badly hurt. I ended up breaking a vertebrae in my back. So that was just one year. I, I, I left Georgia Tech after my freshman year in 89. They won the national championship in 1990. That's right. That's right. So I, li- I like to say that I got to see football at a really high level. I got to play with some guys who would then later spend 10, 12 years in the league. And I saw football at a really high level, and I loved that. But when my – I had a definite day in spring football where I, I hit a guy who would later go to the league, and I cracked a vertebrae in my back, and that was it. I was able to get up and walk off the field, but I never played another down. And that was the beginning of uh, the Lord allowing my idols to come crumbling down because mm. my identity up until that time had been so wrapped up in football. It was all I had ever done. It was all I wanted to do. All I, all I ever wanted to do was play college football. So when that was taken away, I really began wrestling with who am I? And uh, I would transfer to, I later transferred to Florida state and um, just because it was in-state tuition and my best friend was going to school there and we could room together and, about three weeks after getting there, I got in a fight at the Tallahassee Mall with five guys. Um, it's a long story, but it, 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 I was so angry. And I, I, they did something that I, and my pride was all wrapped up in it. And I, 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 anyway, I got in this fight with these five guys. And the reason I got in that fight was because I did not know who I was. My idol had come crashing down and I was really angry. And I would have taken on 10 if they'd had 10, but there just so happened to be five. Um, so it was a, it was a, an idol crashing thing. So that when I 
when I progress through college, what's going on with me is, I mean, I, and I love the Lord. I was walking with the Lord mm-hmm. and I, I was trying to hear from the Lord, but he had also allowed me to play high school football and play it pretty well. And it's, you know, it, college football was not out, not out of the realm of things. And so, you know, when that comes crashing down around me, I'm left with, I have no idea what to do or who to be. And I began writing as a, as a way to deal with my pain and my mm. broken heart and my angst. And I had no, I don't know. I sat down one night and began writing stories and the stories I wrote had very little to do with what I've just explained to you, but it became like the, the dial on the pressure cooker mm. that would let mm. the pressure off. And I began writing and it was, I also at the time did not possess the skill, which I may or may not be presenting in this moment, which is a relatively intelligent conversation with you where there's back and yep. forth. You ask me, I answer, we talk, but I didn't have the skills to get out whatever I felt in my chest out my mouth. I just didn't, I, I don't, I don't know why I just not developed them. So for some reason, when I would sit down to try and figure out what I thought that process for me led to writing it down and writing a story. So as I get through college, at that point, I'm in love with this girl. I, I, I wouldn't, if you'd have handed me a piece of paper to get back to your question, if you'd have handed me a piece of paper and said, Charles, script your future, I'd have said, well, I'd really like to get married to Christy and I would like to do something that would allow me to provide for her and our children because I knew I loved the, to write and I knew I would love to write books, but I was afraid to say that yeah. because there's no path to this. It's not like there's some corporate ladder I can climb. Yep. There's not... There's not something I can do that says, hey, if you do this and follow this step, this step, this step, this step, then you usually end up here. In my world, I don't believe that that exists. If it does, I've never found it. So it really wasn't until I was about 27 that I sat down and wrote what became a novel. It would later become my first novel called The Dead Don't, the Dead Don't Dance. But until then, I was probably intimidated. And part of my intimidation was every time I walked in Barnes & Noble, you, you know, you walk in the front door and you see yep. all those huge faces painted on the wall. Everybody from Steinbeck to Twain to Hemingway to whomever. And something, what that communicated to me was, well, in order to have a book on this shelf, you've got to be like yeah. Herman Melville. And I don't know, maybe it's desperation or something. I ended up working at UPS in the morning preload when I was going through graduate school and you know, desperation is a really good place to be. And the Lord can do a lot with a desperate man. And I got to the place where I think I walked in one day and I said, you know what? They weren't always them. Mm, At mm. some point they were just me. And uh, then I handed that manuscript that I'd written to Christy and she, she gave it back and she said, I mean, I think this is better than some of the stuff I read. And so that, that became sort of how I, but if you'd asked me to script, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it to you. And I certainly wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been able to script what we have known and experienced. And I'll end with this. We have three boys and as we've, they're now 24, 22 and 19, as we've tried to parent them and I've tried to father them, the Lord has been gracious to me in my career. And he's allowed me, you know, when he says, follow me, that's just one step at a time. Just, mm. just, just follow this step, just this step, just this step. And so my encouragement to my boys has been through their entire life. I think 
you don't have to tell me what your plan is. You don't have to tell me where you think this train ride ends up. I think the only time God ever did that in scripture went really bad for Abram because he tried That's to right. fix it on his own. And we've been paying for that ever since. And I think that if you as a child of God will just humble yourself and ask him, what is my next step? That is all that matters. He can take a man that follows him step by step and lead him exactly where he wants him. So I would not have known how to answer that. And I haven't pressed our boys to answer that because I don't think Jesus does that with us. Mm -hmm. I'm not knocking folks who have a vision and know where, like, I'm not knocking that at all. Um, I just, as I look at scripture and my heroes, they did really well when they just followed where he said to go. Yep. I, you know, and that is such a great, it's a, it's a deep answer because it's a truthful answer. And that's what I love about it. And, you know, you think about where you are now, you feel like God's given you a gift of writing. You're the woman you've fallen in love with. You and I are the same age. The woman you've fallen in love with says, I like it. It's better than things I've read. And then you got rejected 86 times. <laughs> so it wasn't a no comeback later. It was 86 rejections. How Thanks close? Yeah, well, you know, listen, we all strike out a few times. How close did you come to going, you know what, maybe, maybe I've misinterpreted this thing. Maybe Christy was just telling me that because she's trying to be sweet. How close did you yeah. come to waving the white flag? Yeah, it, it was a gut punch. It was, mm. we graduated graduate school in 97. Christy was pregnant with our oldest son, Charlie. And we moved back to Jacksonville because we wanted our kids to grow up around their grandparents. And I got a job doing anything that I could do. And it became selling insurance. My brother-in-law had mercy on me gave me a job when nobody else would. And I just helped him put legs on his promises. And the, in the evenings I would write and long story short, there, there, I was offered a position with a large company and a, um, you know, a VP of this and that and a signing bonus and a big salary. And my degrees helped me. I communicated the benefits to a lot of people around the country and they needed somebody to do what I, what skills I had. And, Anyway, it was life on a silver platter and it was the, I, I felt like it was the Lord allowing me, look, you can do this and mm -hmm. you can have this career and uh, there's a lot of money in it. And I had two problems. One is I need insurance. I just don't want to sell it. And to be honest, I'm not any good at it. <laughs> and secondly, I knew the culture and the culture there was that the person in my position would travel 46 to 50 weeks a year. And I had done that to some extent. We would leave either Sunday afternoon or Monday morning and come home Thursday night or Friday, Thursday evening or Friday at midday. And I had done that so much that our then two and a half year old son, when I came home from the last road trip and I pulled in the driveway and he saw my car, my truck, he walked out the back door in his diaper, saw my truck and turned around and walked inside because mm. uh, he was mad at me. He was mad at me for leaving. And I sat in the car and wept. Mm. Um, and I knew that when they offered me that job, that would be my life. And I, so Christy and I had a rough weekend and we fought all weekend and it wasn't like fighting. I hate you. It was just a real grown up fight. And that where's the Lord, where do you think the Lord is calling me and what, like, why did the Lord put me on planet earth? And, and can we figure out how I can take care of all of us doing that? somewhere in that soup. Yep. And 
the Lord did a neat thing um, to Christy that Sunday. I had resigned myself that I was not going to try and go it alone, that I could not do it without her. And I, I wasn't going to just like say, you're going to have to follow me regardless. I, I was going to, I was, I was not going to put that pressure on her or us. I just said, look, I'll, I'll just do it. I don't know how I'll write, but I had resigned myself and I didn't want anything about it. I didn't want anything, any part of this job, but I couldn't see, I could not convince Christy and the Lord did a beautiful thing in Christy over the weekend. And he gave her literally, like I saw him do it. He gave her a deposit of faith. Like he put faith, you know, we talk about it being the substance of things. He put something in her, which gave her a lot of gumption. And she came to me about that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, about four o'clock. And, you know, we'd still been arguing and I had just, I just gone quiet because I knew I couldn't convince her. And she, she'd been crying and she came in and she said, okay, we're going to do this one time all out. And we're going to chase this dream uh, because I don't want you to get to your age for me at your, your age 40. And you tell me you could have been some, someone else or could have done something else. And I don't want to take that from you. So I said no to all of the, the job possibilities and um, resigned from the insurance position that I had. My, my father-in-law was not impressed with this course of action. I started pressure washing and building decks and building docks while we sent out my manuscript. We sent out over a hundred queries and over the next 14 months, uh, we got 85 rejection letters. I quit going to the mailbox. I just, somewhere in here, I read a story about Steinbeck and this, this side of paradise was rejected 126 times. So I took a little yellow sticky note. I wrote one, two, six on it. Mm. And I put it on the side of my computer. And I said, when I get there, I'll quit. 85 was getting really close. Um, I got my 86th one. And um, and really, this I had bills on my keyboard that we could not pay. We were out of money. Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I know it sounds like, you know, I'm telling you, like my grandfather, who walked backwards, yep. both barefooted through the snow uphill. <laughs> but I'm just... It was a low, really difficult yep. place. And Christy hadn't, she, the Lord just continued to give her faith. And through a neat series of God events, I met a writer, same one who told me about the muses. Uh, and he helped me find an agent. And a couple of weeks later, I had a contract for one of the people that had rejected me. And that does not mean the world took off and up to the right. And I still kept building docs. And I think my first publishing advance was $10,000. So it's hard to, I mean, diapers, we could probably spend that in diapers in a year. Um, So it was, you know, it took, it took a long time, but they offered me a two book contract with my, so my father-in-law was pretty, you know, he was, he was, he let me back in the family at that point. And since then (laughs) the Lord's done some crazy cool things with the two of us. We're great friends. He is a huge fan, has loved seeing what the Lord's done. And it's been a neat thing to see happen, but the, there was a period of about 16 months, 14 months, where all I got was rejections. And every letter, every, and I've since, it's been interesting, I've since met some of those people who rejected me. And I had one guy, I met one guy on an elevator, and he said, uh, I sent you one of those letters. And, and I said, I remember. And he said, yeah, I kind of missed that a little bit. So that was fun. There's been some of that sort of stuff that happened. I tell you, the bigger rejection, 
sixth book was where the river ends and it, it came out and um it had been bought up around the around the world it was in 20 countries by the time it came out when it when it released it hit the new york times list it was my first book to do so and so the the foreign publishers took christy and i on book tour in italy we went to milan rome and florence and just kind of one of those crazy things which also happened to be on my 40th birthday there Remember you what go i told you christy said Anyway, um, I came home from that road trip, turned in a, or that book tour and turned in a manuscript and my publisher rejected it outright and completely and canceled my contract. So the 86 were tough. That one was probably as equally as tough because I was coming off the high water mark of my career. What did you, and, and this is something I've wondered a lot. What did you learn through failure? Through the eighty-six projections, through through the one after you've been on a book tour, what 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 in that made you better than you would have been if the first one you sent out somebody went, oh, this is great, you're a New York Times bestseller. What did God do in you during that process? Oh, I've said this to my boys multiple times. I have learned far more from my failures than I have my successes, and I love have loved my successes, and I and I love winning. But I think I learned far more from losing. And I, maybe that's just the way the, you know, the Lord does things with us. Think about the story of Joseph. I mean, it, right. it says in Psalms that the Lord put Joseph in iron fetters. He's, in, he's basically from the time he's sold to the time he's called up is 14 years. And it, he's, he's Israel's deliverer yep. designed by God. And yet he's in prison. And I, you, know, you wonder what about those times forged in him the ability to lead, you know, when he sees his brothers coming down the hallway and they're asking for food. But in terms of my own life, I have learned far more from the difficult times. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I wrote about this actually in the, in the afterward and where the river ends, because my first editor was a, a Australian Kiwi who lived in the UK. He actually wrote stories for Reader's Digest. And I was paired up for him with him on my first book. And he, he was the most brutal, difficult, just, I could do nothing right. I mean, mm. he shredded me for, a, for about 16 months. I rewrote the first chapter of the book I was working on with him 18 different times. Oh my gosh. And I don't mean like I just took the first one and kind of rewrote it. I'm talking about starting from scratch, 18 different approaches. Finally, after 16 or 18 months, I was ready to pull. We had finished the manuscript and he wanted me to go back and start over and rewrite the ending. And, and I finally said to him, I said, John, and I was at the end, I, I, I couldn't do anymore. And I, I said, John, is, is anything that I've done any good? And forgive me, but he was, he's, he's a Brit. So he said, yeah. bloody hell, Charles, <laughs> we're not shooting for good. Mm. And that's, that's when it struck me. John took me, literally took me from a good writer to, wow. to a great writer. And he did it by totally. And at this point, I've got a master's in journalism. I got a PhD in communication. I, I got some, I got some letters behind my name all of which meant zero when it came to learning how to tell a story. That's right. And John fashioned me into a writer. So without that, you and I are not having this conversation. 
Isn't that amazing? You know, and that's the, it's so funny. You know, you look back, your our kids are about the same age. My daughter is 20, she's 20. She was born in 97 as well. My son was born in 94. So our kids are around the same age. And you, you look back in the rearview mirror of life where we're at now and you see all that. You even see what you learned in athletics and how somebody coaching you and somebody coaching you hard made you who you are. And then you, then you learn that lesson. God never wastes any of our experiences. None of them are wasted. And I love what you've done in some of your books, taking even the disciples talking about, they turn the world upside down. If you could go back and you do such a great job putting putting uh, flesh on these characters we've read about so many times. What do you think Simon Peter would say he learned about his failures that allowed him one day to stand and to speak on the day that the church blew up? What do you think Simon Peter would say? I don't think Acts 2 happens without Peter's denial. I I don't think there's any way because Peter at this point is kind of the captain of the defense and he's running the show. And by the time the soldiers show up, he's like, uh-uh, and you know, chops the high priest servants ears all ear off and says, Lord, no, I'm not, I'm not denying you. And then of course we see it through the trial out next to the charcoal fire with the servant girl. And Peter, who is, you know, one of Jesus' best friends, and he's, you know, at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks him, Who do you say I am? And he says, You are the Christ. And he affirms. Peter affirms the revelation that that Jesus is the Son of God before they ever go to the Mount of Transfiguration six days later, and the Father affirms that revelation. So the proclamation from Peter came before the revelation. So we know he knows who Jesus is, and yet when it comes time to die for your Savior, he denies him completely. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus is, they think, dead, then resurrected, Peter is in a mess because he doesn't know how to get back to Jesus. He's already told him, I'll never leave you. And sure enough, he does it three times. And so notice what he does. He goes back to his former life, travels back up north to the Galilee. He's in a fishing boat, stripped down to his skivvies. And and look at what he's doing. He's he's no longer following Jesus. He's now back in his old life because he doesn't feel worthy to do what he said he was going to do, which was follow Jesus in the first place. And I love, this is just beautiful. This is the gospel of the freight train of grace that Jesus just, just, you know, subdivides Peter with when he meets him on the beach there at Togba, they see him, the disciples say, Hey, it's the Lord Peter. And notice what he does. He gets dressed who, who gets dressed before they go swimming. So he's covered in shame. And you know that. Yep. He shows up on the beach and in my mind, he can't even look at him. He's got, you know, his hair down over his eyes, you know, there that, that Jesus is cooking over a charcoal fire and the smell of that takes Peter immediately back to the betrayal. And so Jesus in just beautiful grace filled fashion takes him back to the place of denial. It's the most beautiful do over in history. I've heard this taught in, in several times where the, Whoever's teaching it says that Jesus really comes to people, Peter, and says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep, feed my land, you know, and that whole. I don't think Jesus yeah. came at him that way. I think he sat, I think he handed him a plate of fish. I think he sat down next to him. I think he wrapped an arm around his buddy. I think he could have leaned in and even pressed his forehead to Peter's. And he said, Hey, Peter. Hey, pal. 
Do you love me? Peter's like, well, Lord, you know, I do. And Peter's, and then Jesus is just like, Hey, then just feed my sheep, man. It's just that simple. It's not rocket science. You got everything you need. I'm proud of you. You love me. Come on, feed my sheep, man. I think that's the way the conversation occurred. And because what we see, if that's not how it occurred, then explain to me Acts 2, which is the second best sermon given in the history of sermons. Yep. The church is born. The Holy Spirit falls. You and I are having this conversation in large part because of that. Without it, I don't know how this conversation occurs, but Peter becomes who we all hope and want him to be, you know, and think he can become when we read about him. But without you know, without the bottom of that betrayal and that denial and that just low, low place, I don't think, I don't think Peter would have ever walked and followed and then let somebody stretch out his arms mm. and crucify mm. him the same way they did Jesus. Mm. You know, we're, we're, we're in a study. We started last fall in the book of Acts and we're walking through, we're in Acts 17. In fact, where your last chapter is and yeah, they turn yeah. the world upside down. They've just used that phrase about the guys that are doing that. And you do such a great job. I, you know, your novels, you do such a great job living in that story. Right. And I'd read unwritten just a couple of weeks ago while I was at the beach and it was just so, so well done. What do you think being in the skin of those disciples like you were and the guys that flipped this world that we're still reeling from, what do you think they knew about Jesus that we forget today? What do you think those guys got that you and I and people at 1122 at the church you attend and people at North Star, the church that I pastor and lead in Atlanta, that they sometimes forget? What would you say? At the end of Job's trial, after 41 chapters, you get into the 42nd chapter. God has finished speaking. He talks to him about the behemoth and Leviathan and where were you when I stretched out the seas and all of that. And the only thing that Job can say, and it says, God says three times in the book of Job that in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Mm -hmm. God also says three times that Job was blameless and without sin and a righteous man. So we know he has it messed up. He also says somewhere in there, I wish that I had a mediator to share this conversation between us because I can't get to you. But at the very end, chapter 42, he says, now now I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you with the seeing of the eye. Job had a revelation of God. The same thing that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 when he says that he sees the Lord on the throne. He actually sees Jesus on the throne and he, he immediately is confronted with the holiness and righteousness of Jesus and his own unworthiness. And his response is, I am undone. Mm, mm. I think the disciples had a, I don't know, like a measured revelation. He could only give it to them in pieces because if he gave yep. it to them all at once, I don't think they didn't know what to do with it. We obviously see it, you know, he's affirmed even the, 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 the prophets and the law bear witness on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the father says, behold, my son. So they get that in, you know, one big bang. But I think the thing that, the thing that carried those 11 disciples, well, let's say 10, because we don't know what happened to John. But the thing that carried those 10 disciples to their death was they had looked him in the face 
and they had they had they had known the love of Jesus because nothing else there's nothing on planet earth that would get you and I through torture through whatever to convince us to not speak the name of Jesus what gets us through that is somehow we had this thing in us where we have been loved by the father Mm. And I think they knew that. I think they had, you know, we see this revelation. I talk about it and they turn the world upside down that I think the singular greatest revelation of Jesus, uh, it talks about it more than the kingdom is this revelation of God as Abba, as father, Mm -hmm. because in the old Testament, he's the father of a nation and it's prophesied in the Psalms that he will, that the, that the savior will speak of him as my father and it will become individual, but it's not until 12 year old Jesus shows up on the steps, probably the Southern steps of the temple. And he looks at his parents and he says, Hey, did you not know I must be about my father's business? And from there on through after the resurrection, 189 times in the gospels, Jesus calls God most high, the ancient of days, Jehovah Rapha, Yahweh, Sebaot, all of these names that I love, he calls him Abba Hmm. and he's no longer the God out there. He's the God right here. And I think they had that revelation. I think they knew that. I think that's, you know, I, Paul speaks of Abba over or the father over 40 times in his, in his letters. And so I think they had that revelation and they knew it. Um, That's my opinion. I, I love that. And, and I, you used a phrase right there, and I've never thought about this, Charles, about my father's business when Jesus said that. You know, what I love about what you do and people that are listening today that are CEOs of publicly traded companies and head coaches at major college universities and professional baseball and principals of schools and all the, all the different uniforms we all wear, but yet behind you writing novels, you're being about your father's business and you don't, you're, you're not necessarily going to be picked up in every Christian section in a bookstore, but the story of who God is and his transforming love and grace bleeds through all your stories for the person that picks up your book at Barnes and Noble. They've heard about it. The mountain between us, they saw it as a movie. Um, your new, your new book coming out this summer, the record keeper, if they pick up that book and they read the story and all your stories are unique and diverse, what is your biggest hope they get out of your books, the novels that you write? I've always been, and I, I need to be careful when I say this because the, the Lord knows my heart, but people listen, I might not. I've always been leery of that label Christian yep. fiction because I, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, not, we don't need more, Christian writers. We need Christians who write with their Christianity latent because that is how we tell stories that become road signs to Jerusalem and lead people to the King Mm -hmm. for the first, I don't know, 10 or so years of my career, first decade or so of my career, I really rejected it and worked pretty hard to not be labeled that. And I I guess today I I don't really care. I I can't fight the label anymore. I, I mean, I love the Lord and I talk to him all the time and I just think that there's a difference between Christian fiction as we've seen it, which usually has an agenda and kind of wants yep. to bump somebody over the head and get them to make a decision for Christ. And that's never been my, that's never been my modus operandi. My, my, my hope to get towards answering your question has been to write stories in such a way that 
by somehow and the, the way the Lord allows me to put words together, the words he allows me to choose, the way dialogue is written, the way scenes are described, I don't know, whatever. But that then becomes a an antidote that sort of circumnavigates the hard calloused places in our hearts and touches us in those places where we're still tender. And maybe we laugh more quickly and we forgive maybe when we wouldn't have, and we love when it, somebody's not lovable and we're, we, we, we are unoffended when we would normally be offended. And I, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a decade or so ago, I was reading Psalm 45 and it starts off with my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And I, I realized huh, this is, this is the psalmist talking about being a writer. And at the very end, he ends with, my desire is to make your great name known to the nations. Mm. And I really got quiet with the Lord. And I was like, I really ended up spending time repenting, if you want to know, because <laughs> we'll just keep that between us. We won't tell anybody else that part. But I really just got quiet and it was like, Lord, I'm so sorry. For any time that I have sounded like I'm building my kingdom over yours, I'm, I'm, I just repent. I don't, yes, I would like to write a bunch of novels that end up all over the New York Times list. But at the end of the day, if they don't end up in your library, please don't let me write them. And, and please, somehow, would you speak through my stories in such a way that people's hearts and their affections are turned toward you. Mm. The, the, you know, we've people have studied writers. They talk about the inklings, Tolkien, Williams, Lewis, those guys, they went round and round over pints of beer with this very conversation. How do we write stories? And, and Lewis and Tolkien came up really on a little bit different ends of that spectrum. And I think you sort of see it in their writing, but, but writers have tried to, wrestle with this idea of themes that are larger than life, i.e. a prodigal, i.e. for unforgiveness, i.e. you know, the sheep who gets himself lost, leaves the flock, whatever. How do we write those stories different and new in such a way that at the end of the day, when somebody finishes it, their hope is stirred, their affections are fired, mm. like, you know, stirred fired up and maybe they love differently maybe they hope differently um i've said this a bunch of times hope wins at the end of the day that's right wins and when somebody puts my book down i don't there i could name writers but i i I won't it's not i don't need to compare me to them but people i've read who when i finish i think well, there's really nothing in me that is celebrating anything. And I'm not saying life has to be tied up in some neat little bow. It doesn't. It often doesn't reflect life, but there's a, there's a lens through which many books are written and the lens, it can be described in one word. And that word is hopelessness. Mm. And, and I don't want to write books that do that. I, I want to, I want to stir people's hope. That was one of the things about the Mountain Between Us movie that was so difficult. And I'm grateful for the process. I, I, I am. It was really part of it. Were, part of the whole thing was just awesome. But at the end of the day, the story was very different from my novel. And I had no control over it. Yeah. And people raked me over the coals. And my, my readers were really angry at me. I had a bunch of people tell me I'd sold out to Satan. And they just didn't understand the process. And they didn't understand Hollywood. And, right. 
in the, in the, in the ensuing years, have we gone about it differently? Absolutely. But the story is very different. And there is a, a lens that you don't, when you finish watching the movie, you're like, huh, nowhere I do. I think you see that in my writing. And that was, you know, people who wrote me that had a really hard time with it. I, I'm sort of scratched. It was the first time I was ever a public figure accused and not able to face my accuser. And I, I just scratched my head and wondered, dude, if you sat in that movie and it was difficult for you, how do you think I felt? Yep. That's so good. And, you know, people, it, it, people like being angry about things. I think we've learned that about our society lately. The people like being angry. They just picked on you for that one. So they let, they the did. good part is they left Joby alone. So that was good. So they left your pastor alone for a little while to get mad at you. So, well, he's had, he's had folks jump on him too. We had protest, we had protesters oh, out front. It's know, unbelievable. Kind of it's just, uh, yeah. that's why I love your books because they come in dressed in other clothing but deliver the same message in a different way. And that's what I love about it. You know, in your book, Long Way Gone, you you take Luke 15, and we'll wrap up with this question today. I think it's out of the New Testament, out of the, the parables, it's the one that you can see. It's the one you can feel with the lost coin and the lost son. You do such a great job talking about the father seeing his son a long way off and 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 Peter on the shore with Jesus and leaning his head into him. One day, you know as well as I do, we're gonna we're gonna take all the stories we've read out of scripture and we're gonna close our eyes here on this side and we're gonna open our eyes on that other side. Amen. What do you envision in your mind that first encounter with Jesus? being like for Charles Martin? You've read about him. You've sung about him. You've studied him. You've preached about it. What do you think that encounter is going to feel like and look like for you? Yeah, that's a good one. I, I tried to write about it twice in the end of they turn, they turn the world upside down and I write sort of two different stories. So I'll, I'll tease people with that. They can get the book and look, if, if I can get off my face, if I can get off my face and the nobody in scripture who's ever encountered him gets off their face. Right. Everybody ends up, including John undone, just mm. shredded. And the only thing that gets them off their face is that somehow Jesus appears and lifts their chin and raises them up. And, and, and I think Jesus is a lover and a toucher. And I think he's yeah. a physical, I think he was a jungle gym for kids. I don't think he was aloof. I don't think he was distant. I don't think he stood over there. Mm. I think he, he, I think he will absolutely cover our face and kisses. And that's what mm. it says of the father when he sees the prodigal return it actually says he kissed him, but it's a bad translation. Right. The better translation is he covers his face and kisses. And I think, look, Jesus left heaven. He did not think equality with God, something to be grasped. So he humbled himself becoming like a man and shows up here in a gooey mess, spends 30 years in yeah. private ministry, three and a half in public ministry, where he allows sinful man to shred him and pierce him mm -hmm. and crush him. And he does it because he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And the, so the reason Jesus comes here is a prisoner exchange. It's him for us. Mm -hmm. And he is, he is John 17, so in love with his Father 
I've made your name known to them so that they might know the love with which we had loved each other. There is something about the love in heaven that if we understood it would make our fuzzy little heads mm-hmm. explode. But that love is so great that it caused him to leave heaven. And if you read Revelation 19 and Revelation 4, the, 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 the throne room is full of a whole bunch of people all the time. And all they're doing is singing at the top of their lungs about him. Not because he's making them, but because mm-hmm. he's constantly blowing their minds at, his, at the revelation of who he is. And yet he leaves that and comes here as a nobody and dies a death that we should die to return us to the father. So I think that if I can get him off my face Mm. and when he lifts my chin by the grace of God, I think he will introduce us to his father and it'll be a, a homecoming for all of us that we will not have words for. And we will join the party in heaven that is currently going on and, and, and has been going on since he returned. And probably will get a little bit louder when he returns, you know, all the host of captivity with him. And um, I think we'll probably hear Psalm 24. Let the king of glory come in. You know, open up you gates. Mm. Let the king of glory come in. And so, I look, I don't know. I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, between now and then, I, I maybe I can grab some people by the heart and bring a couple of them with me because we have an enemy who hates us and he, he hates the thought that we might get to go there because he's been cast out and cast down. And he's trying to do everything he can to cause us to hate one another. It says in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. I don't want my love to grow cold. And I got lots of reasons for it to grow cold. The enemy is, you know, I don't. So when I get there, I hope my love is intact. I hope I've poured out my life. Hope I brought a few folks with us and we all get to share in the banquet of the ages, you know, and celebrate the bride coming home. And I don't, I mean, any better than that, you better go get, they turn the world upside down and read the two stories I wrote in the back of it. Cause I don't know how to say it any different. Didn't you enjoy that episode with Charles? So, so good. And what a picture of how you can lead from the space and the place that God's put you, whether you're putting pen to paper in a private room, putting out books and novels that thousands and millions are going to read. It's just amazing how God puts people in right in the right place. And the key is we don't forget why we're there. and We truly do lead with our faith out in front. Thank you so much, Charles Martin, for sharing with us and being a part of this journey. Well, we're going to take a hard spin in our next episode, and we're going to sit down with one of the winningest high school football coaches ever in high school football. This coach, Philip Haywood, is entering his 48th season as a head football coach in the state of Kentucky. He has won 466 games, eight state championships, six runner-up finishes, And I'm going to tell you, when you hear his heart and when you hear his story, you're going to go, I love this guy. Now I know why people play for him like they do. It's going to be so fun. So go today. Be the leader that God created you to be in the space and place he's put you. And we're going to be out with episode 147. Make sure you're subscribed and you don't miss a day. Thanks again for tuning in and know that I love you. 
Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.